day of the advent of our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom is honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you, that was sung so well. That is the Epiphany Proclamation, which sings out for us, the faithful, the calendar for the coming year of the great feasts of the Christian life, of our Lord's life, of our lives as we join them. It comes to us from the time period when there were not, get this, iPhones and watches and things to help us tell the time. One had to do it this way, so people knew when to come back for the great celebrations that were ahead in the year. So this tells us that Epiphany is an important feast. We adorn this Mass with some extra special things. The door chalking before Mass, the proclamation just sung out a moment ago. Epiphany is grand. It is ancient. It is very important. In fact, as the early feasts go this time of the year, it's more important and ancient even than Christmas itself back in the old days. Christmas is a little newer feast that celebrates in Roman custom the birth of the child. But the Epiphany celebrates the birth of the faith of the nations. And that's where the gospel gets at for today, when the Gentiles, the Magi, the non-Jews, come and they witness and adore the newborn Christ. At that moment, our salvation as non-Jews, here as Gentiles, that's when our faith is born for the entire world. So important and beautiful day it is indeed. So, so fortunate we could celebrate it here today like we are. What does one say about the Epiphany? In terms of an event, it's mysterious, it's interesting. These guys show up a presence from a long way away, right? Uh, what we know about it for absolute certain is what the scriptures tell us. Matthew's gospel is the only one of the four that records this very interesting event. For him, it was important to capture this story for his own reasons as he puts together his portrait of the Savior. Yet, in addition to the scriptures, one can speculate and one could have theories, and I'll underscore the word theories, about what else went on around the scenes of this text to tell us maybe what actually went on in this celebration and this event a long time ago. So I'll explain that briefly, and then from there we can pull out of the story, both the scriptures and the, the theory, some important, I would say, movements that pull all of us into it too. We always find ourselves in the story, at least we should anyhow. That's the point of the feast, right? So to the story. Um, it seems to be the case that King Herod in Judea as king, as something of a Roman king, was perched along very important trade routes in the first century Palestinian world. Mediterranean Sea just to his west, Arabia to the south and to the east. And so what seems to be the case is that somewhere around the year zero, let's say, on our calendar, uh, the Arabians, so this would be modern-day Yemen, back then Sheba, that's the very southern coast of Saudi Arabia, it's a long way away, where they mined gold in big quantities, and probably also by speculation the Nabataeans, and they are the ones who live in modern-day Jordan. You heard of the city of Petra, this kind of famous place to visit these days, it was flooded a couple weeks ago and it rained, poured rain over there, that's the Nabataean kingdom, that's east of the Dead Sea. Those people who were trade partners with Herod probably would have crossed the pathways of Judea often with their wares, with their caravans, with their commodities. So would have known Herod. He would have been a, a brother of them as a ruler in those territories. It seems to be the case, astronomers tell us, that around the year zero, give or take a little bit, and the heavens, the stars aligned, maybe Jupiter, Saturn, and Venus or Mars, we're not quite sure what, to form an unusually bright heavenly body. 
We have evidence of this in the scientific records. And for the pagan kings and territories, the non-Jews, this is a big deal. They were star worshippers. For them, the stars in the sky, unlike us, for them, they were gods, deities. They directed their lives on the earth. You've heard of horoscopes. The same principle applies. If you can read the stars correctly, then you know your future and what happens to your family and your life, etc. As they saw it, when the heavens birth a new star, the earth births below a new king, somebody important. And so, figuring out where it was, they speculated, well, perhaps this is our trading partner, Herod's kingdom. It seems to be over his territories. Maybe he's had a son. We should take our wares and our goods, and we should come see him and do him homage and pay respect as trading partners that we are. So up they would have come with their caravans, as they often did, with the gold from Sheba, with the myrrh, which is a plant grown in the uh, Nebuchadnezzar territories that you use to make a lotion out of for burials, and with incense, which they all traded in in big quantities in the Middle East, up they came. Of course, they get to Herod's palace, and as Matthew says very well in his gospel, Herod has no idea what they're talking about. He's caught by surprise, which is his own homily someday about how the Jewish ruler has no interest in the coming of the Messiah except how it affects his own political future of the story. And he sends them, after looking through the scriptures a little bit, blowing the dust off of them, to Bethlehem. Go there, he says, and you'll find this child. Say hi to him for me. And there they go. Upon entering the house, it says in Matthew's Gospel famously, they offer the gifts and they worship. And then they go home by another way. They don't want to go back anymore the same way because they've been changed by the encounter. So that's a little mix of probable theoretical history and scriptures that we have that guide us in God's word. So, as I always say, so what, right? What does that even mean, right? There are, like I say in the beginning, some movements in the story that are very important to land on for our own prayer and our own piety and our own lives. The verse would be this, and this is true in the scriptures, and even more so if one thinks about the theoretical historical ideas. They go on a journey. That's the opening movement. These magi, these astronomers, these pagan kings, let's call them, I guess, come a long, long way. It's a well-worn way, maybe, if they're regular traders, so it's a common path, a familiar one. But to travel that kind of distance, again, southern Saudi Arabia all the way up to Judea, that's a long trip. Sacrificial, difficult, not easy. There's an investment in this process. They made a real trek to get to this point. That's the first thing we should understand clearly for our own selves, too. The journey matters, especially long ones, even if familiar ones at times. When they get there, what do they do? Something very, very critical. It says in Matthew's Gospel, he uses the word homage three times. One, two, three. They do the child homage, and they fall down prostrate, flat on their faces. This is a dramatic act of worship in the Middle Eastern world, and for us today, too. You don't do homage, you don't fall down flat unless the person in front of you you realize, you know, to be someone who respects and commands authority, who you want to give your life to, who you want to belong to. In that moment, those foreign kings began to realize that unlike the stars they had worshipped for a long time, in this child was something new, something that was going to rule them, that needed to rule them, I should say, whose words mattered and whose kingdom was going to be eternal and enduring. He captured their hearts even as a child. 
and the response conveys what they knew in their hearts to be the identity of this kid. He's a king. He's a ruler. He's a mighty figure. So journey they do, travel they do, and worship they do. Very, very important. The worship is key. You only worship a god. They knew him to be a god. And the gifts they offer him, very famously, another movement of the story, they convey also more clearly their understanding in a deeper way of this child. Not only a god, the god, the unseen god, the Israeli god they'd heard about, perhaps, from their neighbors. How do we know this? Well, they bring him gold, as I say, mined in the Sheba slash Yemeni mines in good quantities. They had it on them, I guess, right? Who do you give gold to? To rulers to kings, to important people, to authority figures. So the gold is for a person who is supposed to be in charge of their hearts, to who one gives allegiance and tips the head and gives the life. Gold is for a king. They knew him to be a king. There is incense, frankincense, right? What's that for? It's for worship. In the ancient world, pagans and Jews alike, what did you incense? Sacred things, divine things. You worship pagan altars with incense, sure. But also in the Jewish temple, around the altar, there was the incense altar, the sacrifice altar. Incense was for a god. The incense was for the fact that they recognized this child to be divine, that the heavens had come down to touch the earth, that, as I said on Christmas Day, homily got to touch the ground. They recognized in this child something that was divine and worthy of their worship. And not only that, too. In the temple, around the incenses, sacrifice. They recognized that this child was going to be offered as a sacrifice for them. In the incense, clouds of smoke as time would pass. One incenses offerings. He is the ultimate perfect offering. Just like this morning, I incensed the altar. Same idea. God lives on this altar. That's what incense is for. If you're a visiting king and you give incense, you're saying, I know who you are. You are God. You are king and you are God and you are sacrificed, to quote the Christmas hymn. And then there's the myrrh, right, which is always the fun one, you know. As I mentioned, herb grown in the east. They traded it in big quantities in these caravans that they were traversing, right? You ground it down, you made a lotion out of it, and what you did, you did it to embalm dead bodies to try and fend off death. It's an embalming agent. It's for those who have died. This is a great newborn baby shower present, right? You show up and say, hey, congratulations, this is for his death, and here's for his college fund. Have a nice day, right? <laughs> Talk about a mood killer, okay? But of course they understand, right? They, they get, in some beautifully divine-inspired manner, that this child has come to offer his life, that when he's going to be in a tomb, one day we will all be in a tomb ourselves. There's no running from that reality. So it's for the recognition of the fact that he comes to die for all of us. That's the point. I would submit to everybody here, myself and you, that we can walk these same movements if we pay attention. In fact, we do walk them, I think. And this morning, as you hear in such great numbers for the Lord, is living in beautiful proof. So to the journey piece for a second again, right? Uh, we sit here this morning, all of us in this room, at the end of a really long journey called the last week. Think about it, right? Last Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, all through the week we have wound our way through the well-worn path, so it's, it's, a, it's a familiar route, so to speak, but every week is different, every week is new, brings new adventures, and maybe you've arrived here this morning completely worn out from the last week. 
And we stand at the beginning of another week. This is a threshold day. It's the first day in Christian theology. So the week is a walk. The week is a walk. The week is a journey. And sometimes it's a really long one. In my case. So I just finished my first full week of work at the Archdiocese. And let me tell you, it was a long week. (laughs) It's fine. I'll go back to work tomorrow. Don't worry. But not just me, right? Everybody here who's a parent, who's a spouse, you know, your kids got sick, someone got mad, someone's annoyed at work, there's this problem here, this thing broke, there's always something in the week, you know? So we get here this morning having walked and traversed a long way. Fine. What does one do when one gets here? One imitates the Magi. We worship. What does God say to us in the commandments, number three, and what does the church echo in the catechism? On Sunday, on the first day of the week, you must worship. That's the rule. Because God says, you've got to bring that whole week from the past and the one ahead to my altar and put it here. So when we come here, what do we do? Again, in great numbers this morning, we do homage. We worship because we understand that who lives on this altar is the one who can save us from the mess of the week and from the one that's ahead and from the one after that. So... We bring the walk of the week, whatever it is, to the altar every single week because we know that we need it. We need to be fed by him, helped by him, taught by him, lifted up by him, washed by him. We're here to worship, and we must always worship. That's the rule. We journey and we worship. I think, too, that in the gifts of the Magi, we too have found reflected our own situations. Let's start with the middle one, the, uh, the incense. What does that mean? If I'm going to come and offer the incense after my week and to begin the new week, it's my way of saying I'm going to make the Mass itself and its details and worship very important to me. I'm going to try and focus. I'm going to try and tune in. I'm going to say that it matters. I'm going to be present to the Mass. Okay? So I'm going to sit through Father Nathan's really long homilies, or Father Kevin's mini micro-homilies, <laughs> bite-sized homilies, right? Or whoever, you know, this is the thing, too. It doesn't matter who's up here, okay? After today, you're going to have a parade of helpouts through here until June when Father Strand comes. And thank God they're helping us out, right? So the thing of it is, no matter who is here, a priest is a priest is a priest. And we come to offer the sacrifice, right? So we're going to say with our incense offering, our frankincense, that the Mass itself, with its minutia and details and its prayers, all of it matters, and I want to be focused on the details of the worship, right? That's my offering at the altar to God, my heartfelt prayer. No matter who the priest is, no matter what's going on, I want to engage it. Is that hard? Yes. That's why it's a sacrifice. That's why God takes delight in the effort, because he knows that it's work for us frail little creatures whose attention spans wander all the time. Mine too, okay? Gold. We bring gold here too. I would say that the gold, among other things, is the, the good news of the last week. And maybe what's going to be coming ahead, too. For as much as the week gets kind of long, and mine was long, like I said, right? We have good things in the week, too. Blessings. Little ways that God showed his face. Little ways that we had graces. Little ways that we sort of realized something we wouldn't have seen any other way. That's the gold of thanksgiving we bring to the altar. It's the nugget from heaven that falls from God saying, I bless you as my child. Here's a sign that I am with you. So the gold is what's good. It's gratitude. It goes on the altar, too, and we need to put it there. And not only, gold is literal. We put money in the basket. 
That is our offering, too, because we say I want to place at God's disposal the resources of my household and my life so that church and her mission can do with them the things that are good. I give to the poor, I give to the sick, I give to the ministries of my parish, whatever it happens to be. The gold in the basket is the gold of the Magi. It's an offering, and it's an important one. We need it, because it shows God that we want to contribute to the bigger mission, bigger than just ourselves. Then there's the myrrh. What about that one? I would say the myrrh is a way of bringing to the altar the hard stuff of the week, the deaths of the week. There are always deaths in a week, no? The hard things. Points along the week where maybe our mortality stared us in the face when I caught a cold, or I heard about a hard event in the world news, some tragedy or this or that. There's always enough of those to go around, right? That is death coming to find me in a week, knocking at my door saying, one day you're going to die. This life is short, it's fragile, it's limited, you are mortal. When I know that, when I've had failures, when I've had doubts, when I've fallen, when I've made mistakes, when there have been pains, that's the myrrh of my offering. I bring that here too. And what does God say to me? He says, I'm intensely interested in those dark moments because I went into the tomb first. I go there ahead of you. Bring your myrrh to know you don't need to be afraid of the tomb. I've been there and I've blown it open. That's what Easter is all about. So we bring that too, with confidence in his power to save us from those things. Lastly, after all that, our journey, our worship, and the gifts that we offer, knowing who this is on this altar, right? And his intense interest in our lives. What is last? We go home by another way. And I don't mean the other block, okay? Turning left to right or whatever. I mean we leave here transformed. We're not the same. Anytime anybody comes into contact with God, and we do at a Catholic Mass, you don't leave the same. God never leaves us like he encounters us. We're always changed as creatures and as people. And that's the genius of the entire thing, because God says to all of us, you come worship me, you meet me, I change you, you go out into the world, you change it. To all the nations. That's today's feast day, right? All the nations must come into my church, God says. Every person on this planet, the gospel applies to. There's no exceptions. And how are they going to find the good news? You. That's how. So come to worship. Put your heart on the altar. Go back home a different person. And as you are changed, the world encounters me, God says, through you. And all the nations come into the faith. And here we are today. All of us here because somebody else taught us about Jesus. That's the point. God is beautiful in his designs, is he not? So, today, right, with all that's in our hearts, lots of things, we praise him. After our long journey of life in the week, we worship him and we go home transformed so that through us he can transform the world. So obviously this is my, my last Mass here at the parish in the capacity that I used to have for a long time. Technically I'm back as a visitor, I'm already I guess in a new role, and so I come back now in that position. But anyway, it's so nice to see so many people here today, and so nice to pray with you on a great feast day. And I just want to thank everybody for your prayers and for all of your notes and well wishes. I know many of you filled out little prayer cards, which is just tremendous. The prayers have been holding me up, which is great. And um, 
I've been saying a lot lately, I'll say it again. I, I just can't write you all back this year, so I feel horrible. But thank you for sending gifts and things. It's very much appreciated, so thank you for that. It's, um, it's been a great time for me here in West Bend. I, I mentioned at the last Masses, I was on memory lane this week at Holy Angels with Father Penchik's funeral on Thursday. I was over there, a lot of priests, many of you were there. And uh, Father Britton had the homily in typical vintage Father Britton manner, which was actually a really good homily, Father Repenchik. And he reminded me of things I've forgotten about from years ago around here that I used to be a part of and do. So yeah, I came here in 09 to uh, hear and Holy Angel shared, uh, thinking I would stay only two years. That was my plan in my mind. And uh, God laughed at that, of course, from the heavens, as he does about our plans much of the time. And then in the uh, winter, spring of 11, uh, Father Jeff was getting moved out of the cathedral. And the Archdiocese explained to me they didn't have anybody to take the parish here. And so I said I would think about it, and I'd be willing to do so. And on uh, March 19th, St. Joseph's Day, it was a Saturday that year, in 11, they explained to me that I was taking over. So I would be the youngest pastor, uh, ordained only five years in the diocese, and one of the biggest parishes. So isn't that exciting, I thought to myself. <laughs> Yay for me. <laughs> and I came back to Father Jeff, and he said, oh, congratulations, Father, you'll do fine. It's okay. And then uh, a couple months later, it was May, and he's leaving, and I am catch him in the hallway, and I said, when in his office it was, I said, any last words to me about anything? He said, and he looked at me with this kind of tired look that Father Jeff still has to this day, to be honest, because he worked so hard for this community. He just loved it here and still loves it here very much. He simply said to me, you know what, Nathan? He said, I have done my best, it is your turn. I've done my best, it is your turn. And so I think at, at the end, that's um, all a pastor can say when one leaves. Not to judge anything I've done or not done. I've done my best, it's someone else's turn now. And um, I thank you for your patience with all my mistakes. You can point them all out to me, you have. <laughs> which is fine. And I thank you for being the great community that you are and St. Mary's too. Uh, if I've done anything good here at all, it's for God to judge, but I know it's because I've had great people behind me and praying and sacrificing. It's, it's a great, great faith community. So anything here really is your work. I'm the, the helper, right? And God does all of it, of course, as we know, so I appreciate it. So just know that as I leave, and I um, told Father Kevin something of the same about a month ago. I said, I've tried my best, now it's your turn. And I told Father Strand, same, same idea, I've tried my best, now it is your turn. It's somebody else's turn. And they will do great. And Father Kevin, you have a great leader. Please be gentle on him. It's a lot for one guy here for a few months. Just be mindful of that. He has big shoulders, but it's a lot. And uh, please support and welcome Father Strand, as you did for me once upon a time and have all these years. He's a great priest. He'll be a good shepherd for our community here, both communities. And I know that I can count on you to be as kind to him and helpful as you have been to me. So please always know that. So when Mass is done, um, downstairs in the hall, there's a little uh, brunch or something, I think. So you're welcome to come down and gather, please. You can do that. And if you can't stay, I'll greet you at the door there and, and offer my farewells and goodbyes and well wishes. So we'll do it that way. But as a wrap up, just know that I appreciate it and I thank you. And I will always be um, grateful to God for the blessing and privilege to have been your pastor. It's been a blessing for me. So thank you with the bottom of my heart. And God, God bless you always.
Thank you. I, I do appreciate it. You are very kind. Really, thank you so much. The Lord be with you. Now, mighty God, bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go forth, the Mass is ended.